Good morning and welcome to another special Around the World in 20 Minutes as we wade through the Israeli-Hamas crisis and try to make sense of American policy, which is evolving almost minute by minute. Um, it's one of these weeks that you live for, <laughs> if you do what I do. Uh, you're swamped with work, it's a tsunami, but all the training, all the thinking, all the realist framework uh, are a compass that steers our ship through these very stormy seas. Because crises clarify, and this one certainly has. We've we've seen crazy left-wing, woke student campus people try to disavow the speech they're uttering as though it has no consequences. Uh, we've seen their shocking support for Hamas, even though most of them couldn't find Palestine on a map. Um, and we've seen how easy it is to, to not see where our interests lie at that level. Um, we've seen Europe bury its head in its sand because of its migration policies, uh, the desire for cheap labor because of, of, of the immigration. Nobody ever thought about the world or the key word in America for immigration, assimilation. I live in Milan, and trust me, while I wait for Sarah at the metro, there are an awful lot of people who have no desire to be assimilated, who want to take the benefits of living in Italy, the generous social benefits, and have nothing to do with Italian culture or society. They want to take and not become part of something. That's very different to the general American experience where immigration has been one of our great strengths. But now we need to manage it again in terms of assimilation. Um, that's the key fact. We've seen that. We've seen all kinds of apologists for the savagery inflicted by the barbarity of Hamas. We've seen people say basically to Israel, you can't respond. You can't defend yourself because we don't like that there are consequences to the, this attack on civilization. We've seen all this, and we've seen the rot in the American Academy, which I blame conservatives for. We pretty much gave up on the Academy. And I'll give you an example. Um, I had the background from St. Andrews that I'm, I'm a logical guy to be a professor, but it never occurred to me that was an option, because the Academy is run by lefties, and if they saw me make one statement or give one substack, I would never, ever have gotten anything approaching a deal. It's a closed guild to the left, much as the media now is, uh, the operating arm of the Democratic Party, the mainstream media, as we've seen. And these things have all been there beneath the surface. I, again, immediately went to Washington and went to look for work at a think tank because I knew I had no chance in academia because my views weren't left of Trotsky's. That's a problem. We've left the academy and impressionable thinking at high-level American universities to a bunch of fanatics who don't represent anybody. I mean, more people in 2000 voted college professors, voted for Ralph Nader than voted for George W. Bush. And that's all you need to know. And so now we, we reap what we sow. And we have a bunch of people who don't know anything about education, who've been poorly educated, but have opinions, radical opinions, about almost everything. They don't criticize capitalism. That's where their bread is buttered but they criticize everything about the Western civilization that has allowed them to live rather decent lives. And uh, all this has become very apparent, and uh, we need to address these things. But I'm here to talk about foreign policy. And President Biden, and, and again, there are an awful lot of times in my profession that you wish you were wrong. And for me, the, the most obvious one was the Iraq War. I remember saying to my staff, 
you know, what's going to happen is that we're going to, in a principled manner, stand up against this neoconservative abomination where they link everything together, where fighting Al-Qaeda suddenly morphs into fighting Saddam, even though they have nothing in common, the Ba'athists and Al-Qaeda. Uh, we're going to morph from one to the other. And what's going to happen is that we're going to lose bureaucratically. I'm going to have to leave and quit my job, which I adore, um, and my position in Washington, which I adore. They're going to go ahead and do it anyway. And at the end of the day, it's going to cost a trillion dollars, kill tens of thousands of Iraqis. I was wrong. It's closer to hundreds of thousands. People died. And thousands of Americans cost a trillion and make Iran the dominant power in the Gulf. I was right about almost all of that. And none of that stopped it from happening. It was a Thomas More man for all seasons moment. I just had to go ahead and do it anyway, knowing that I was fighting for a cause that would be lost. And I'm desperate to avoid that this time with this evocation of World War III that I mentioned that, that Niall Ferguson and others have mentioned. And President Biden dutifully, in his feeble way, picked up on this in his speech to the nation last night. And I knew this was coming, as you could tell by my last rather desperate plea to look at this thing in a realist manner. And sure enough, Biden took the bait. And in fact, immediately after reading the Ferguson piece, I called the trustee John and I said to John, watch out for Biden putting all this funding together in one huge omnibus bill. I've been in D.C. long enough to know that what you do when you're the president is you tie unpopular legislation to popular legislation and you force your enemies to, to either say no to things they want or say yes to things they don't. And sure enough, two days later, that's what happens. Now, I know I'm right. And again, hurrah for me and political risk and hurrah for our firm's 85% call record. Yeah, it's gone up a little. Fantastic. Uh, best in the business. I'm very proud of that. But boy, this is one that you hope you would be wrong about. But we're not. So what did President Biden do? He, he in, in only his second TV address to the nation, he sought to bind the conflicts in Israel and Ukraine together in the public imagination. That, again, he can't get Ukraine, he, or he's having trouble getting the supplemental next $24 billion for Ukraine through, partly because the House is leaderless, but partly because of war weariness in the country, where now a majority of Americans in polls, somewhere around 55%, say we funded Ukraine enough, and a huge majority of Republicans, the numbers over 70 there, are against further funding. Forget what you see on a debate stage. Forget uh, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley. Between them, they account for about 25% of the Republican primary vote. On the other hand, Vivek Ramaswamy, um, Governor DeSantis, and Donald Trump account for 75%, and they're skeptical of further aid. And this is in line with the base. So the leading, despite the TV, the mainstream media parading former retread neocons, um, on the scene. They don't really speak for much of anybody, as the primary voting will tell us, and as the polling makes clear. Rather, the 75% that Trump, Ramaswamy, and DeSantis represent uh, jibes pretty closely with about 70% of the Republican Party, which is war-weary in Ukraine. And critically now, a plurality of independent voters also say enough is enough there. So they probably get one more tranche of aid through the White House for Ukraine, but it's really slowing down as people see the difficulties 
ahead. And as the vaunted Ukrainian counteroffensive has amounted to the Battle of Verdun, they've taken huge casualties and taken almost no territory. It's World War I out there. That's why you don't see pictures of that war anymore. You see there's nothing to show. It would be two artillery uh, barrages, one against the other. That's what you'd see. So they don't bother showing that. It doesn't make for good TV. Stalemates really don't. And so that's going on. And so the war is getting less and less popular as we see absolutely no uh, breakthrough. And it's already cost $114 billion. They want another $24 billion, and Biden wasn't getting that. So what does he do? He goes big. He takes the Ferguson World War III argument and he goes big. And this is what Democrats do. And again, the title of this one I love, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. This is one giant problem rather than three separate problems, Taiwan, Ukraine, and uh, Israel, which have almost nothing to do with one another, as we showed last time. But let's conflate them. Let's put them all together. And the magic trick means that you have to fund Ukraine, even if you don't want to, to get the funding for Israel that almost everybody is in favor of doing. And that's the magic trick that's going on. So Biden goes big, Wilsonian. This is what they do. They always go big. And, and then they lose the specificity that actually makes up the world. The world is a very huge place. I once flew around the world for three war games, took me seven or eight days. And one of the things that comes away is the cliche. It's an awfully big place with an awful lot of different cultures out there. And I basically lived on the plane and then got off it and made speeches. And you really get a feeling of the dazzling differences that really define our world and that you really have to know about these differences if you're going to understand it. You don't make everything the same. You notice the glorious differences and diversity of the world. There's a time where the word diversity actually makes sense. But no, that's not what the Wilsonians, the neocons do. They're utopian schools of thought. They make everything the same, even when it's not. And so you see here Biden framing... Uh, the spending, and he's asking for $100 billion. I mean, this would fund Ukraine through the end of the term for Biden up until the election. Um, and, and so he's going big or going home. And so he asks for $100 billion for all these conflicts together. And not only these conflicts, he asks for $100 billion for Ukraine, for Israel, for immigration, dealing with the crisis at the southern border, which the Republicans like, and for giving aid to Taiwan, which the Republicans also uh, think is important. You know, I've been banging the drum for this for a very long time. My friend Bridge Colby, um, you know, is way out in front on this constantly on Twitter, arguing that China and the Indo-Pacific are the most important problem out there and everything else has to, you know, fall in around this. I entirely agree with Bridge. He's bravely been out there making this case for years, way ahead of the curve. And so it's funding for literally everything. And that's where the title is, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Goodness sake, let's never make choices. Let's conflate everything together. It's all part of one struggle um, together to fight the enemies of democracy abroad and protect Americans at home. But he doesn't explain why Americans need protecting at home from any of these three crises. How could, say, losing the war in Ukraine, which nobody's advocating doing, nor is it likely to happen, it is indeed a stalemate, how would a catastrophic loss in the war in Ukraine affect Americans at home? Remember our Roosevelt rule. America, as the greatest power in the world, is not threatened unless somebody dominates either portion 
of the great Eurasian landmass, which is the world island, the most people, the most resources, the most ports, the most wherewithal, the most everything. So if somebody doesn't not dominate Europe or Asia, the United States can rest easy that almost every problem is a second order priority. Those are, by definition, the first order priorities. Okay, now let's look at the three crises. There are many other uh, axes that we could look at that are different, but certainly this one works very well. We'll just take the one uh, basic variable here. If Ukraine were to lose and Russia were to take or dominate a large portion of Ukraine, it certainly couldn't dominate Western Ukraine, but say it moved further east and partitioned the country. Would this make NATO any less important? No, Russia just proved it can't even take over the whole of Ukraine, let alone invade a NATO country, let alone threaten capitals in Berlin, Rome, and Paris. This is just fanciful. So no one is going to dominate Europe whose views are antithetical to those of the United States, meaning Ukraine is not a first-order priority. By definition, it's not. However you slice it and dice it, and in a way, the Biden people admit this in what they're doing because they're having to lump aid for Ukraine with these other more important causes, knowing that on its own, aid to Ukraine might not pass because it's not a priority. Um, and so implicitly, even when they're doing this, they're acknowledging how unimportant the outcome is in geostrategic terms. So there's that. This wouldn't affect America and Americans at home or protect them one jot. I, I, this, it drives me nuts. This Ukrainian idea, we're fighting for you. You're not fighting for me at all. How dare you? The effrontery of this. You're fighting for you, and that's perfectly understandable. But don't expect me to pay for everything and give you a blank check in one of the most corrupt places on the planet. And so somehow Biden's saying they're, they're fighting for us and all democracies are linked in a fundamental way, and it's a primary interest to defend them wherever they are. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Absolute nonsense. Dangerous nonsense. So that doesn't pass the laugh test. Israel, second point. Israel is the most dominant military power in the Middle East. No one doubts that. There are a series of great regional powers in the Middle East. There's Egypt, which is in decline for a variety of reasons, primarily economic. There's Israel, the, the most important military power. There's Turkey, which plays a major role. There's Saudi Arabia, which is really the Sunni champion, and there's Iran, which is the Shia champion. You have five great regional powers vying for influence along with outside powers like the United States and China in, in the Middle East. Israel can take care of itself. I'm glad there's funding for Israel in this. If it were separate funding, I would happily give it to the Israelis. It's about $13 billion, I believe, is for the Israelis that they put the numbers in front of me. Sorry, $14 billion for the Israelis. Um, in this bill. And uh, nobody's doubting that Israel should, America should support Israel to the hilt, give it all the diplomatic support it needs, uh, give it all the intelligence support it needs. And I have absolutely no problem with the two aircraft carrier groups steaming off the Mediterranean, led by the Ford um, and the Eisenhower, our two aircraft carriers there, and telling Hezbollah, if you so much as twitch, we're going to help Israel bomb the positions you're in. That uh, in terms of shelling them, makes sense. I would go absolutely no further, but I would go that far, and that makes perfect sense. But again, how does this affect America? How does this directly, you said it protects Americans at home. How does this protect Americans? It doesn't. 
Israel will take care of business on its own. And, and the fighting, the street fighting in Gaza will be awful. It will be slow. It will be street by street. What the Israelis are trying to do is concrete, which is why I think they'll be successful. They're trying to destroy the tunnels underneath um, Gaza that all this European aid money, UN aid money, American aid money to Gaza has gone to construct what is known as the Gaza Metro, which is 300 miles of tunnels underneath Gaza, where Hamas can move its terrorists around so they can attack Israel and shoot off rockets whenever they want. And, and Israel rightly wants to destroy this intricate and well, you know, they've been at it for 20 years, well-designed tunnel system, which is where um, Hamas hide their weapons and put their fighters. And it's to go through the tunnel system bit by bit by bit, street by street by street. Street fighting is terrible, when this happened in Mosul with ISIS, the rather well-trained Iraqi special forces had a 40% casualty rate. Now, the Israelis will do better, but there will be high casualties for the Israelis, and they know this. That's why they're taking so much time getting this in order. But in the end, they want to knock out the infrastructure of Hamas. That's the tunnel system. They want to eradicate the weapons that are hidden down there so to really defang Hamas, and they want, to kill, they want to kill the fighters who are hiding in the tunnels to do this. At the same time, they want to take out Hamas's senior leadership. And so they decapitate its leadership, they take its wherewithal, and they damage the fighting infrastructure. These are very concrete goals. Israel will do at great cost. It will be a long war, as Netanyahu said. It won't be another made-for-TV thing. Fighting in cities never is. It's the worst kind of fighting, as Stalingrad and World War II attest to. Rubble is a wonderful defense. Uh, but we will see this happen. And the United States plays an important but perif peripheral role in this, and we need to leave the Israelis to take care of business. So again, this doesn't directly secure Americans. This is just nonsense. Taiwan, in a way, you could argue does. As we've said, if the first island chain falls and China becomes the dominant power in Asia, well, that meets the test of the Roosevelt rule. Um, and so the United States should balance against um, t uh, China as we are. Uh, the AUKUS defense deal with uh, the nuclear submarine defense deal, the defense pact with Australia and Britain, the quadrilateral initiative with Japan and uh, with India and with Australia and the U.S., exactly who you'd want in, and, and bilateral deals with people as far flung as the Vietnamese and the Philippines, now back on site under President Bong Bong Marcos, who just gave us permission to base in the northern Philippine Islands, meaning we could resupply Taiwan. All of this is good, good news. And that does rise to the level of something that would affect average Americans in a fundamental way. So three separate crises, three separate outcomes. Ukraine, peripheral interests. Israel, primary interest as an ally, but a peripheral role because they can take care of business as the dominant military power in the Middle East. And Taiwan, major interest. They couldn't be more different. And he's lumping them together for the simple reason is he wants to get the aid money through. They are not the same. And there is a danger to believing in everything, everywhere, all at once. And we're going to see what that is now. So he's asking for $100 billion. How does this break down? Well, again, this is part of the magic trick. Everybody wants to aid Israel in Congress. This would pass in a day if left to its own devices. But of the $100 billion, again, because Israel can largely take care of itself, $14 billion is for Israel, $60 billion, yes, you heard me right, $60 billion of the $100 billion are for Ukraine. The least important priority gets the lion's share of the money. 
This is the magic trick. This is utter nonsense. So by conflating everything, you can slip by the fact that the least important priority gets the lion's share of the money. And that's what they're doing. 60 billion to Ukraine, only 14 billion to Israel at the time. And the way the Democrats do this shows their absolute lack of intellectual discipline. And this is the problem with neocons and Wilsonians like Biden. Rather than make choices, what they're saying is, let's just fund everything. Let's just fund everything. And we'll fund the border crisis, we'll fund Taiwan, we'll fund Ukraine, and we'll fund Israel. Everybody gets a piece of cake. And in fact, uh, J.D. Vance, the great senator from Ohio, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, a great book, um, and a very fine senator who I think greater days are ahead for, um, it just called this out. It was great. He said Biden is, you know, is is holding support for Israel hostage to 60 billion more for Ukraine. This is how every Republican and realist, including myself, looks at this. In, in other words, yeah, you can have your support for Israel, but only if you pay up one more time for the ineffectual, corrupt government running Ukraine. And so rather than, than putting these together, he acts like they're equal. Fund everything, which is what the Democrats always say. Fund everything. Another $100 billion on the bar tab. And Biden actually goes so far because, again, he, he is keeping to the script of the World War III, the Ferguson argument. He says, well, this will be good for America because we're going to create jobs. Blue-collar workers are going to work making all these armaments for the rest of the world. And we'll become, as FDR said, and you know from my book, I, I, I love FDR. I think the Roosevelt rule and Roosevelt's handling of pre-World War II is just incredibly underrated genius. And so Biden apes Roosevelt and says, we will be the new arsenal for democracy. Okay, let's historically think about that. The difference between the United States then and now. And Biden, and this is where Biden's time warp is the, is the last kind of dangerous point to make. When asked on the plane ride back, I think, from Israel, um, could the United States manage to fund both Ukraine and Israel? And I think even Taiwan was mentioned. Biden looked incredulous and arrogantly said, as only someone entirely oblivious to reality might, well, of course, we're the United States. I think there he was swearing at the time. I think he said, God damn it, we're the United States. We can fund everything. Um, and as though this weren't even a question, of course we could fund everything. Now, part of the reason that Biden says this is that he lives in a time warp. The guy's as old as dirt. He's been a senator since the 1970s. Since I was five or six years old, Biden has been at the center of American politics. And he comes from this other time when the United States was relatively, compared to the rest of the world, richer, more dominant, freer to do what it wants. And he can't live in a time where there are actual constraints on American action. As we move to a more multipolar world from the bipolar or even unipolar world that Biden knows, his brain, and this is true of many people, not just him, can't adjust to the structure of the new era. So for Biden, this is a crazy question, a la World War II. Of course, we can fund everything. And in fact, the United States in World War II, and I know this from The Last Best Hope, again, please pre-order today, that from The Last Best Hope, Roosevelt, at one point, the United States in World War II was putting out manufacturing-wise more than every other major power in the war put together. And that's an incredible fact. 
you know, it was providing more wherewithal in steel than Germany, Japan, Britain, the Soviet Union, all put together. An extraordinary accomplishment for the United States. And we don't do that anymore. The rest of the world rebuilt itself and the United States. And this is the part that Biden leaves out. Think of what he's leaving out in his time warp, thinking it's the 1970s or 1980s. He doesn't address 9-11. He doesn't address Iraq and the trillion dollars we spent there. He doesn't address Afghanistan and the trillion dollars we spent there. He doesn't address the financial crisis, which almost destroyed global capitalism. He leaves out the rise of China, which doesn't enter into this in terms of our limits, or the rise of the rest, making the world more multipolar. He leaves out all these events. He leaves out domestically right now a $33 trillion debt, which we didn't have in 1939. $33 trillion in debt. We don't have the spending space to fund everything everywhere all at once anymore. And anybody who can read numbers would come to this conclusion. He doesn't leave out the huge problems internally, which do affect Americans directly, unlike Ukraine. The fentanyl crisis, which killed 120,000 people last year, more than died in all of Vietnam, double. Vietnam casualties were about, deaths were about 58,000. So 122,000 die, and he leaves this out. We're not going to deal with that. Um, How in the world, our roads don't work, our schools don't work, as we've seen by the kids at Harvard, not understanding how global politics works and feeling things rather than knowing things. Uh, And that's at Harvard. What do you think the rest of the country is going? The one thing we learned from COVID is the teachers unions are the villain of the peace. They're indoctrinating children without teaching them. Everyone knows this now. So we have a we have a school system in desperate need of reform. We have a road system in desperate need of repair. We have airports that don't work anymore. We have thirty three trillion dollars in debt. This is not the United States of 1938 or 1970. And by leaving out these constraints, you can get away with saying, as Wilsonians and neocons do, do everything everywhere all at once. But that simply isn't the world that we live in anymore. And by doing this, all you're doing is making more likely imperial overstretch, which has destroyed many a great power in the past. They try to do too much, ignore what's going on domestically, and have financial problems that lead to their ruination. We're a long way from that, but this is a danger to the United States. Biden's attitude, his Wilsonian hawkish attitude. And remember, this is a guy who favored the Iraq war, is do everything everywhere all at once. It's all linked together, never make choices, fund everything, and wait for Armageddon. We can't do this again. From Iraq and Afghanistan, I've seen this party before where we conflate things that have no business being linked together, and we do this as a way to avoid choices. And Biden's magic trick with the $100 billion, giving 60 to Ukraine, our least important priority, and only 14 to Israel, which everybody wants to fund, as J.D. Vance said, is simply holding Israel hostage as a first-order priority rather than dealing with Ukraine as a $60 billion third-order priority. Biden's world is one where you never have to make choices. Sadly, I live in the real world where you do. Hope you enjoyed this. Had to get this out there. Couldn't let this go. It's way too important. If anything comes up over the weekend, I'll put off my writing further and do another substack for our community. Again, please do. Our, our counter blast here is the last best hope. Please do pre-order the book now on Amazon and wait for the early January date when we're going to confound the algorithm. All go online at once as a community. 
give it the five stars and say, can't wait for the book. And then we'll get Amazon working for us and get our realist message out there, which is desperately needed given President Biden's shop-worn delusions about World War III. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. See you next week.